If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John chapter 6, and we're looking at this kind of famous discourse that Jesus gives in the second half of John chapter 6. And we're kind of continuing uh, last week's sermon, but I've kind of framed this sermon in its own right, and uh, we're not even going to get through all of it. <laughs> but uh, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 6, verse 38 through 40, and the title for this sermon this morning is, Why Did the Father Send the Son. Now, again, if you haven't been with us in the last few weeks, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. We then looked at how Jesus ended up walking on water as he headed back to Capernaum. We looked at how crowds came alongside him just to have their stomachs filled. And then we look at how Jesus jumps into this sermon about how he is the bread of life. And so we're kind of picking up in that context here in verses 38 through verses 40. Read with me, if you will, silently as I read aloud. But the apostle John writes this in John 6, 38, Jesus speaking here says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the beautiful worship that we've experienced this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to give our offerings to you. Thank you for the joy of the fellowship of the saints here in this room today. And I pray that as we come to this place of the preaching of the word of God, that you would move through your word and that you would affirm in our hearts the truths that you want us to learn today and that we would live these truths out in our life out of a love for you and a desire to show our love for you in our own obedience. So be magnified today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start off by asking the question, which is the title again of the sermon, which is simply this. Why did the Father send the Son into the world? Very simple question, and yet a very profound question. Why did the Father send the Son into the world? Why did God the Father send God the Son down from heaven to earth below? Oh, I suppose many answers could be given, but only one will do this morning as we examine this text. Why did the Father send the Son to the earth? Let me give you a couple of possibilities. Did the Father send the Son in order to fulfill prophecy? After reading about the birth of Jesus Christ in the beginning of Matthew and how Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, we are told in Matthew 1.22 that all of this took place in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And while Jesus was still a baby, Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt to escape King Herod, who was trying to kill him. And in Matthew 2, verse 15, we read, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And after this, Jesus went to live back in Israel with his parents in Nazareth. And there we read in Matthew 2, 23, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. And after living in Nazareth for a while, Jesus then relocated to Capernaum, which became the hometown of his ministry. And we read in Matthew 4, 13 and 14, and after leaving Nazareth, he went and lived to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be 
fulfilled. So why did Jesus come? Did God the Father send Jesus into the world so that certain messianic prophecies would be fulfilled? so that God's word would not be broken, so that we could have confidence that God would do what he said he would do. Yes, I would say, but I would also say this is not the main reason why God sent Jesus into the world. Did the Father send send Jesus into the world in order to be a great example? We read in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this reason, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Is this why Jesus came to earth? Did the Father send the Son to the earth to be a great example for you and me to follow, to provide a positive role model for us to emulate, a mentor that we should follow the pattern of his life? Is this why Jesus came? I mean, it is 1 John 2, 6 that says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And so is this why God sent Jesus into the world, to show us how to live? Was Jesus primarily sent to earth to carve out a path of obedience that we would also be obedient and walk like Jesus walked? Should we walk in the same manner of Christ? Absolutely. But this is not the primary reason why the Father sent the Son. Did the Father send the Son in order to heal the sick? Matthew 15, 30. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. Jesus was known as a great healer. He healed the royal official's son. Jesus healed the 10 lepers. Jesus healed a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus healed blind Bartimaeus. Did God send Jesus into the world to be the great physician, to heal all the sick people who came to him? Yes, but this was by no means the main reason why God sent his son into the world. Did the father send the son in order to promote social justice. Listen to what Jesus said in the Jewish synagogue in Luke 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus did care about the poor. He did proclaim liberty for those who were held captive. He did have great concern for those who were oppressed. And while Jesus was not into free handouts, and while he even rebuked the crowds in this very chapter who came to him just to have their stomachs filled, he was still moved with compassion when he saw human beings going through a difficult time. He did eat with the sinners. He did spend time with the prostitutes. He did take care of the poor and the needy. So did God send Jesus into the world primarily to right all wrongs, to solve world hunger, and to start programs of help and hope for all people? Well, I would submit to you that this is not Jesus's primary motive. He did gently remind us in scripture that the poor would always be with us. The father did not send the son in the world to render social justice. So did the father send the son in order to be a great teacher It was Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. In John 7, we read that no one ever spoke like this man. 
In Matthew 7, 29, we read that he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We know from all these passages that Jesus was a master teacher. He knew theology. He knew his Old Testament. He had a way with words. He was both able to challenge the theologians of his day and connect with the common man. He was clear. He was crisp. He was refreshing. He taught not only to please the, he taught not to please the people, but in order to feed the people. He taught not in a condescending way, but in an uplifting way. He used analogies from everyday life to clearly illustrate his divine point. He told stories or parables to present crystal clear spiritual truths. He used many metaphors and similes. He cut to the heart. He flawlessly explained hard to understand Old Testament passages. But did Jesus primarily come to teach? I would submit to you that teaching was not his primary mission. So why, again, we're asking the question, did the Father send the Son into the world? And according to this text, I'm going to give the answer is this. It was to do the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? The Father's will is that Jesus would seek and save the lost. The Father's will was that all that the Father has given to the Son would be saved and would never be cast out. The Father's will was that Christ should lose none that the Father has given to him. The Father's will is that Jesus would raise them up on the last day. God the Father did not send Jesus the Son into the world primarily to be a prophet or to be a role model or a healer or to feed the poor or to be a teacher, though he did all these things beautifully. God sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior. This was the will of the Father, for Jesus to save sinners, to secure them, and to raise them up on the last day. And so if you're here this morning and you're off course and your religious walk, just be reminded that it's about Jesus, the Savior. If you're sick today, be reminded that while he may give you healing, it's still about the gospel. Are you poor today? Be reminded that you can eat of Christ. Are you looking for the truth today? Whatever's going on in your life, let me encourage you to look to the good news of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came to save sinners. What you need today is the gospel of Christ and if the Father's will is for you to be saved, you will come to him. And Jesus Christ will save you. And he will sanctify you by his grace. And he will secure you forever. Jesus said to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And so as we continue to look at this question today throughout the sermon, why did the Father send the Son? I want to show you three answers in this passage, and we'll probably just get to the first two, about why this passage says that the, that the Son came into the world. Are you ready this morning? Number one, here's the answer again of why the Father sent the Son into the world. According to verse 38, Jesus came to do his Father's will. You see it there in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus giving an explanation of why he has come. He has come to do the Father's will. Now, last week, 
We opened up uh, verse 35, reading this passage about how Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And just quickly recapping last week's sermon, we said that out of this claim of verse 35, Jesus teaches us four things. Number one, he teaches his own divinity. When he says, I am the bread of life, that echoes Yahweh's statement to Moses in Exodus 3 when he said, take off your sandals for you're on holy ground, go and, and deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And the father said, tell them I am sent you. And he's like, who's that? And he's like, I am that I am. And so when Jesus says in John 6, I am the bread of life, it echoes a reminder that Jesus is God. He is divine. The second part of that statement we looked at last week was Christ's vitality. He says, I am the bread of life. And that idea of being the bread of life is talking about he is the eternal life. He is the Zoe life, the life that starts now and continues forever and ever. He's the bread. We also looked last week at the fact that Jesus is accessible. His accessibility is included in this statement because he says, whoever comes and whoever believes it matters not what your background is, what your ethnicity is, whether or not you're in the covenant people of Israel or you're a Gentile. What matters is, is that whoever comes, comes. And so Christ is accessible for all people who come. And then lastly, we looked at how the fact is that Jesus is superior, his superiority, because he says, if you do come, you'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again, which infers he's superior to anything else that you're looking for to fill your soul. If you're looking for a temporary filling, it's going to run dry one day. But if you're coming to the bread of life, you'll never thirst and you'll never hunger again. And even after that incredible statement, that's pretty much the whole sermon right there of the bread of life sermon, even though it goes to the end of chapter six, some people in verse 36, it says, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. And so last week we asked the question, well, how could people see Christ do these miracles? How could they hear him say, I am the bread of life and still not believe? And last week I told you it was because of their inability. They were not able to believe because the father had not given them to the son. And we jumped into the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election, which are difficult doctrines to understand, but they are glorious doctrines that are important for us to realize are soundly, soundly found in the scripture, particularly in Ephesians 1 and Romans 9, and we looked at those in some detail last week. And now what we're getting to here is in verse 38. In verse 38, Jesus continues to explain why all this has happened this way. And it's because Jesus is set on doing the Father's will. Jesus has come down from heaven. And it's a reminder when it says, by the way, that he came down from heaven, that he didn't just begin in the incarnation. Jesus didn't just start as a baby. He always has been because he is God. And he did come down from heaven and he came down in order to do the Father's will. And so understand that from eternity past, in the divine counsel of our triune God, it was determined that the Son would voluntarily come to earth and fulfill the will of the Father. And this was Jesus' desire. This was Jesus' mission. This was Jesus' purpose on earth to fulfill the will of his Father. Well, your first blank this morning there, as we've now set the whole table for what we're going to get in today, is we look at the fact that Jesus came to do his Father's will. Let me remind you, this is your first blank, Jesus feeds off of doing the Father's will. 
just in case you think that somehow he begrudgingly does his father's will, or he'd kind of rather do his own thing, Jesus actually feeds off of doing his father's will. Go back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and look at verse 34. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 4, 34? He says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, that's a profound statement because usually we think that our food, our sustenance, is simply looking at Christ, and that's, that's true. But it's also in doing what the Father's called us to do. Because if we're just supposed to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus, then we're supposed to understand what he understands and to do what he does. And what Jesus says is that my food is to do the work, to obey the will of the Father. Jesus's nourishment, Jesus's sustenance was to do the will of the Father to accomplish his Father's work. And I wonder if to some degree we've lost that concept in our Christian lives. I believe that we should feed off of the Father and off of the Son and off of the Word of God. But I also think that if we're going to follow what Christ is saying here is that our food should also be doing the will of the Father. Listen to me. If all of your study and all of your prayers and all of your meditation and all of your Bible reading and all of your book reading and all of your sermon listening doesn't transform you into wanting to do something for God, then something's wrong. The whole act of worship is in a response to God's love for you and a response to the fact that he saved you is that as we reflect on that, we want to go do something for him. There's a movement in the church today saying, oh, it's not about doing more things for God. Just go back to the gospel, go back to the gospel. And I'm saying, yes, go back to the gospel. And when you see the gospel in all of its glory, get busy doing what it is that the gospel transformed you to do. And the gospel transformed you to do the Father's will. That's what we ought to be feeding off of. We don't just feed off of the word. We feed off of the opportunity of Christ-enabling, spirit-filled obedience, and it's as you're doing and filling and obeying God's word that we're also filled with greater perspective, greater cause for worship, greater desire to magnify him. It's the idea of it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. It's the idea that our faith grows not only from studying, but also from applying. It's the, it's the uh, rebuke of James. To, don't be just hearers of the word only, but be doers. Be, be those who do the will of God. And not only do we just do it, 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. Not, we're not supposed to see it as a burden. Like, oh, well, I got to do the father's will today. You know, kind of like maybe one of my kids from time to time doing their chores. Well, I got to clean my room today because mama and daddy said do it. You know, that's not the idea of how, what a true Christian should respond. It should be like, I get to obey Christ today. I love the father today. I'm filled with his spirit I have an undying love for him. And so whatever he calls me to do, I want to do it. May that be your joy today. May your joy be not only in rejoicing in what God has done for you, but for you to count it a privilege for you to serve him. It's a privilege for me to be a pastor. I love what I do. You know, I worked in the workforce for many years. And when God called me to be a pastor, it's a great joy. And so at any moment in my life, if I'm like, oh, man, it's kind of tough being a pastor. I got to deal with this, deal with that, deal with this. You know, I just try to remind myself, yeah, but I get to preach the gospel. I get to live for Christ. I get to exalt him every moment of every day. Do I do it perfectly? No. But it's a joy and a privilege. And whatever your calling is, you could be a fireman or a policeman or a stay-at-home mom. Your calling is to obey Christ and your profession 
Even if you're a stay-at-home mom, right? The idea from our culture is, like, what is that? But the idea from the Bible is, look at you. What a privilege. What an awesome opportunity for you to teach your children the Scripture and to disciple them and to point them to Christ. What a beautiful opportunity to nourish your little ones. And so we all have a privilege today to, to do what God's called us to do, to do His will with a happy heart and a happy attitude with an eternal perspective. And I hope you're feeding off of that. I hope that doing the Father's will excites you and it causes you to want to do it more and more, not in your strength, but in his. Now, we also see here, I believe, that coming, uh, Jesus coming to do his Father's will, he also shares with us that Jesus does nothing on his own. So your next blank is Jesus, not only does he feed off his Father's will, he does nothing on his own. In fact, if you look over at John chapter 5, the previous chapter in verse 30, Jesus says exactly that. I can do nothing on my own as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus never operates outside of his father's will because Jesus and the father are one. This desire and fulfillment of Jesus doing the Father's will is evidence of his love for the Father. And it's not necessarily that Jesus couldn't do anything on his own. It's just that he would never want to. He would never want to be separated from his Father. He would never want to do his own thing. He would never oppose to do the Father's will because the Father's will is also Jesus's will. And when you are walking in the spirit, you will live the same way. You will not want to be separated from God's presence. You will not want to do your own thing. You know, the whole battle of the Christian life is, man, I want to do this because I'm still struggling with my sin, but I know God wants me to do this. And what I'm saying is when you're walking in the flesh, you start to do the fleshly things. But when you're walking in the spirit, you're like, no, 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 no. My will is to do the will of the Father. What I want to do right now is obey him. What I want to do right now is to say no to the temptation of this world because I realize it's a lie and it will never satisfy me. And so what I really want to do right now, if I'm his and I've been transformed and I have a new nature, is I want to please him. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so my will is to sacrifice for him, to serve him, to worship him, to find my joy in him, to think about him, to live him, and to tell others about him. That's what I want to do. And if that's the true you today in Christ, that ought to be who we are in Christ as Christians, then we're going to understand that we never want to separate ourselves and do our own will. We should say like Jesus did, I can only do what the Father says. Kind of like Micaiah said in that message a few months back, maybe I can only say what the Father tells me to say. That's all I can do. That's all I can do. I can't do anything. I don't even want to do anything else. You know, when you're walking close with Christ like that, you, your, your own self-will will not be attractive anymore. Your will will seem so boring, so superficial, so mundane. The real excitement in the Christian life is to be one with Christ, to have his blood coursing through your veins, to have his air in your lungs, to have his heart beat with your heart. That's what's exciting about being a Christian, not just being the same old you. Somehow you tack Christ on. It's like, no, it's, I'm a new man. My inner man has been renewed day by day. I'm becoming new and living in a new mindset. And so let me ask you this morning, are you glorifying the Father by doing the work that he gave you to do? Are you glorifying the Father by accomplishing his will? Do you delight in doing the will of the Father? You know, it's that statement that had a big impact on my life. 
provided by John Piper, who says, God is most glorified in us when we are most, what, satisfied in him. And it's the idea of like, it's not just about God being glorified because I'm saying that he's my glory. It's by me honestly finding my satisfaction in him. And as I find my joy and my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I can't help but to tell others about it, to live it, to live it in my marriage, to apply it in my everyday life, to study harder, to work harder, to get up earlier, to stay up later, just whatever it is I'm doing, I'm doing it because I'm finding my satisfaction in Christ. I'm not doing my will. I'm doing all that I'm doing for Christ in his strength. We also see this, your third blank here would be Jesus shows the world love by obeying the Father. So as he's doing his Father's will, which is why he came down, he's showing love to the world by obeying his Father. He's showing the world what real love looks like. Real love for the Father is not just words, but it's action. Real love for the Father is not just theoretical, but it's practical. Real love for the Father is not just meditative, but it's productive. Which is why Jesus says in John 14, verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know I love the Father. So part of the reason he gives for why he does the will of the Father is he wants the world to know. I love the Father. And when you're obeying God, you're showing your love for him. It's how Jesus says it in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? If you love me, you will obey me. That ought to be just a regular part of our lives. If you love me, you're going to obey me. And obeying him is not a burden. It's a blessing. We need the spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us up every moment of every, God, I want to obey you. Sometimes I wonder, but Lord, the real me, the new me, my new nature wants you. Help me. If we love, we will obey. Love is not just something, again, that we say, it's something we do. And what is the Father's will in this context? The Father's will is to save those whom he has chosen from eternity past. So let's look now at the second heading, which answers this question, why did the Father send the Son? Number two, the Father's will is that Jesus would lose none. Okay, so why did Jesus come? To do the Father's will. What is the Father's will? In this context, that he would lose none. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The will of the Father is that the Son should lose nothing of all that's been given to him. And we talked last week about the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election, but we're also talking in this passage about the doctrine of eternal security. That's what he's discussing now in verses 38 through 40. I believe he's now focusing on this great doctrine of the fact that once you've been saved by the grace of God, you're his forever. This is the teaching that once God saves a person, they are secure for all eternity. They can never lose their grace-given salvation. This is the perseverance of the saints. All those who've been given by the Father to the Son will be saved. This is the Father's will. Listen to how Harry Einside, well-known theologian of the last century and former pastor for a season at Moody Church, he defined eternal security this way, quote, when we speak of the eternal security of the believer, what do we mean? We mean that once a poor sinner has been regenerated by the word and the spirit of God, once he has received a new life and a new nature and has been made 
partaker of the divine nature, once he has been justified from every charge before the throne of God, it is absolutely impossible that that man should ever again be a lost soul. So what is he saying simply? Once you're saved, it's impossible for you to be lost again. You've been changed. You've been regenerated. You were dead. You've been made alive. You can no longer be lost. To say it another way, the Bible teaches your next blank here, no Christian will ever be snatched out of his hand. You got to turn with me to this cross-reference, just a couple of chapters over to the right, John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29. If I'm ever talking with somebody who's struggling with this doctrine of eternal security, this is the first place I go. John 10, 27 through 29. And what do we read there? Jesus teaches, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Christ's sheep hear his voice. Christ's sheep follow the shepherd and no Christian will ever be snatched out of his hand. Why? Because the father is greater than all. No one can overpower the father. No one can overcome the father. No one can compete with the father. So what the father does will be done. Now, sometimes if you're talking to somebody, they're going to say something like, well, I know that nobody else can snatch me out, but what if I just jump out of his hand? Is that possible? Look, that's ridiculous. That's not what the text says. It doesn't infer there no one except for you. No, no one means no one, right? When he says no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, that includes you, right? It, that, that means that you can't remove yourself. No one, even yourself, are not able to remove yourself out of the hand of God because all that the Father gives to the Son will be saved and they will follow Christ. And since God is greater than all, no one can take you away. Not the devil, not his demons, not the one who abused you, not the one who hurt you, not the law, not the facts that you still fall short, not tribulations or trials. No one and nothing can take you away from the eternal security Christ provides. Now, not only that, but no Christian will ever be snatched out of his hand. But we also here learn, here's another reason why no Christian guarded by Christ will be lost. No Christian guarded by Christ will be lost. Again, Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. I have guarded them that not one of them has been lost. And in that passage, we realize you're doubly guarded. Not only are you guarded by the power of God, who's greater than all, you're guarded by Christ himself. And let me tell you something, Jesus is a mighty warrior and no one will ever overcome his power. He is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and he is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He is the lover of your soul and he will never let you go. So nobody can snatch you out and Christ guards your salvation. First Peter chapter one, verse five says it this way, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are guarded by Christ. You are guarded by the power of God. 
You have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and it will never pass away. And there is no way that God the Father or God the Son will ever allow you to be taken away. Not to mention the work of the Spirit who seals you for the day of redemption. And so if you're here this morning and you've been saved by grace then you can rest assured that your future is with Christ. And if you've been saved by grace, you will be guarded by that same grace until the very end. Now, even though these things are true, does it mean that we don't struggle from time to time with assurance of our salvation? In fact, I'm going to ask you an honest question, and I want an honest answer. How many of you guys have ever struggled with your assurance of your salvation? Some point in your life, you said, you know what? I'm not 100% sure if I'm saved. You can put your hands down. That's what I'm talking about. The reality is, even though these truths are clearly stated in the word of God, we have all from time to time struggled. And so your next blank says, no assurance, no assurance can be had if you only look at your life. No assurance can be had if you only look at your life. You know, there's a lot of people who struggle with assurance of salvation. Many of you raised your hand. At some point, you have struggled with that. There are children who struggle with assurance of salvation. There are high school students who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. There are college students in this room on this Sunday who attend the Master's University, and right now you're struggling with assurance of your salvation. There are full-blown adults who've been in the church their whole life, and they struggle with the assurance of salvation. There are elderly people who struggle with assurance of salvation. And the idea here is that we struggle with the fact of, are, are we really saved or not? That's where the struggle is. And I remember struggling for years. I was eight years old when God saved me by his grace. I remember it like it was yesterday. And yet, for some reason, over the months that followed, I would from time to time go to my mom and dad and be like, I'm not sure if I'm saved. Well, why do you think that? Well, I'm just not sure. I went to the kind of church that had an altar call, and every single Sunday the pastor said, if you're here today and you're not sure, you're saved, say this prayer with me. And so I'd say the prayer every Sunday. All right, maybe this time. Maybe this is it. Just in case I'm not in, maybe this is it. And I went through that for years, and I remember uh, I was afraid to talk about end times. I was afraid to talk about the return of Christ. I just, I just was afraid. And one day I came to my dad, and I said, Dad, I'm just tired of this. I'm tired of struggling with not knowing if I'm, sure, if I'm really saved or not. I'm just not sure. And my dad said, Adam, you know what your problem is? I'm like, what? He's like, you're just not taking God at his word. I'm like, what, what do you mean? And he's like, do you believe in Christ, that he is the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father but by him? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whoever would believe in Christ would not perish? But yeah, I believe that. Do you believe in John 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, that, that, uh, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved? Yeah, I believe that. Do you believe in John 10, 13, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be? Yeah, I believe that. Then my dad was like, then you're saved. If you believe, if this is true, if you're telling me a true statement, you believe in the truth of God's word, then you're saved. You need to take God at his word. And I appreciate so much that counsel to me because the, the truth is, once my dad just kind of helped me see the problem was not me, the problem, well, I mean, it was me, but it was, it was that I was doubting God. The problem was instead of taking God's word and just having faith that can only be given to you, that just made a difference in my life. I mean, think about it this way. This is what D.L. Moody says on this exact same topic. D.L. Moody, the great evangelist from Chicago, says this, I believe hundreds of Christian people are being deceived by Satan now 
on this point that they are that they have not got the assurance of salvation just because they're not willing to take God at his word. Listen to me. Do you know who the accuser of the brethren is? It's Satan in the book of Revelation. And what he does is he accuses the brethren of being not saved. So every moment of every day, you might be tempted by Satan himself to doubt your salvation. And as we talk about this topic, I think there's really three things that come to the top. This isn't in your notes that, that are why people struggle with this. The first one is this ongoing, unrepentant sin in your life. If you're here this morning and you're living a double life, you're a hypocrite. And by day you come to church and by night you party and fulfill your life of sin. And you know it. and You don't care. Then I would say to you, obviously you're struggling with assurance because you're not living like a Christian. And for all we can tell you, probably not. If you're living in open, unrepentant, day by day, on purpose sin. If that's you today, don't expect to have assurance. Doesn't matter that you said the sinner's prayer when you were a little kid. If you're living like the devil... You probably belong to the devil. You understand what I'm saying? That's the first reason people struggle. And if that's you this morning, you need to repent and come to Christ. Now, the second reason people struggle, let's say, well, Adam, come on. That's not me. I'm a good church folk. I'm in here and I'm not some, you know, you know, horrible person. I'm here. I'm just struggling. Well, for you, I think the second reason people struggle with this is that they are afraid that they haven't done enough good deeds in their life to evidence salvation. This is the crux of where I think most people struggle. You examine your own life and you're not positive if you've done enough to give you assurance of your own salvation. Here's the third reason people struggle. You have an unhealthy introspection of questioning whether or not you really believe. And what that looks like is this. Well, I think I believe, and I think I believe, but what if I fooled myself to not believing what I think I believe? I mean, what if I'm just saying I believe, but really deep down I'm not believing, and I don't even know I don't believe? I mean, you, you would not believe how many people struggle in that way. And you talk to them, and you're like, yes, 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 no, yes, yes, no. We just stop it. Just stop it. You know, you can be, this is the kind of person who's contemplating their navel. You know what I mean? They just get, it's unhealthy. They haven't, and they think it's noble. For some reason, they think, oh, well, if I describe it like this and I'm not sure, then people are like, oh, wow, that's a good point. Oh, good for you. Very good. It's actually not a good thing. It's not a good thing to not have assurance. Listen to me this morning. If you don't have assurance of salvation, it could be because you're in sin, because you're not trusting God and not trusting God is a sin. Or it could be that you're confused and you're actually focusing more on a works-based salvation. And since you don't see enough good works in your life, you're doubting whether or not you're saved or not because you don't have a good, enough good works. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you. Hopefully, if you're sitting here, you're thinking, Adam, take him to 1 John. Take him to 1 John, right? That's the book that we always go to when we talk about struggling with assurance of salvation. So go there with me, if you will. 1 John, an excellent book written for this very reason, according to uh, most uh, people. It would say, hey, the theme verse of 1 John is actually found at the last chapter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where the apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So the point of the epistle of 1 John is so that you may know. He doesn't want you to wonder. 
He doesn't want you to guess. He doesn't want you to lack assurance. He wants you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're his. That's why he writes the book. And what happens is, is a lot of times we look at 1 John and we begin to look at all the objective tests that are given in order that we can see if we're really saved. Well, let me remind you, those objective tests given in 1 John are not for the believer to necessarily examine their own life to see if they're saved. They're to expose the false teaching of the unbelievers to show you, the believer, why they're not saved. Makes sense? If you look at the whole context, it's actually all those questions are given so that you can affirm that these people who say they're Christians but aren't are actually unbelievers. And what happens is, if you've ever followed Dr. MacArthur's ministry, who we love and respect in so many ways, then what happens is we take those objective tests and make that the main deal. For example, the 11 tests that are given about throughout the book about whether or not you know you're saved, I think they're all healthy, and these are all good tests. Uh, maybe you've read them before. Maybe it's been a while. Here's the 11 tests. Number one, do you enjoy fellowship with God and Christ? Number two, are you sensitive to sin in your life? Number three, do you obey the scriptures? Number four, do you reject this evil world? Number five, do you love Christ and eagerly wait for his return? Number six, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Number seven, do you love other Christians? Number eight, do you receive answers to your prayers? Number nine, do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Number 10, can you discern between spiritual truth and error? And number 11, have you suffered on account of your faith in Christ? Now listen to me, these are all good tests, but they only provide secondary assurance. Because if you start reading through those tests, just as I read through them, and you're sitting here today, you're going to be like, uh-oh, I think I've felt about three of them at least, and maybe four. I must not be saved. Well, the point of the test is not to cause a true Christian to doubt their salvation. The point of those objective tests are to help Christians identify false teachers. Make sense? Not only that, I'd suggest to you this. First John is not about objective tests. First John is about Christians looking to Christ. Your primary assurance as a Christian will only be by you looking to Christ and not your own life. As much as you want to look at your own life and it can be helpful, it's only secondary assurance. Primary assurance comes from you looking to Christ and that's what First John's all about. Let me prove it to you. Look at the first couple of verses of each chapter and we'll see what I'm talking about. First John 1, 1, here's what he writes. That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The very first verse, the very first chapter, who's he talking about? Christ. All the false teachers were saying, oh, Jesus wasn't really divine, or if he was divine, he didn't really have a body. He was just a demigod. It was getting into the whole idea of the, of the teaching that Jesus wasn't really here on earth. And so John said, no, 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 hold on a second. I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. He is true. Jesus Christ starts right there. We must look to the reality that there is a historical Jesus who came, who died, who was raised from the dead, and that's the means of our salvation, and it's real. And so if you're struggling with salvation this morning, I would say you better look to the truth of Scripture that Christ is here. He was here on this earth, and he's coming back. Look to Christ, not to your life. Second, 
chapter of John, 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Maybe you'll see it a little more clearly here. You're struggling with your salvation. You're reading through 1 John. I'm telling you, don't look primarily at the, at the tests of the book. Look primarily at Christ. Here's why. 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Where does he tell you to look if you're struggling with sin? Does he tell you to look to your life and see whether or not you've done the 11 tests? Or does he say, no, 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 time out. I'm writing this whole book so you never sin again. But guess what? You are. You will sin again. And when you do, guess what? You have a divine attorney. You have Jesus Christ who will plead your case before the Father. And not only is he your divine attorney, verse 2 says, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You're here this morning. He is your sacrifice. He is the means of salvation. He paid the price. Your works will never get you anywhere. So don't for a second think that somehow looking at your life, test one, check, test two, check, test three, check. Oh, look at me. I must be saved. No, 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 no. No, look to Christ first. He died for me. He loves me. He's my sacrifice. He's my divine attorney. It's all about him. And this entire epistle is about looking to Christ if you want primary assurance of your salvation. Look at chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. What kind of love has the Father given to us? He's given us Christ. He's given us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The only way that you can have assurance is by seeing this kind of love that the Father's given to me, namely Christ. Assurance does not come from looking at your own life in the primary sense. That's secondary assurance. Is it helpful? Yes. Should we examine our lives? Yes. 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Absolutely. But is that primary assurance? No, because you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to obey perfectly. You're going to be accused by Satan that you're not a believer and you're going to struggle. So when you struggle, don't look at your life. Look to Christ, chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now, in some ways, we're talking here about general discernment. Are you going to listen to the teachings of Orthodox Christianity or the teachings of the world. But part of what he's saying also is like the way you know who is of Christ is they confess Christ. The way you're saved is you need to confess Christ. You need to agree with God on who Jesus Christ is as the savior of your soul. It's not about your life. Ultimately, it's about Christ and his life that he did come in the flesh, that he did die on the cross and he was raised from the dead. One more chapter five, first John chapter five, Verse 1, everyone who believes, doesn't say everyone who passed the 11 tests, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the idea is that it's about believing. And of course, if you believe, it goes on to say, then you will love the Father. And later in chapter 5, you'll obey him. And it's not burdensome. But it starts with, first, you believe. You believe in him. Listen to me. People struggle with assurance of salvation in the church because they examine their life first. And if you examine your life first instead of Christ's life first, then you've switched primary assurance 
with secondary assurance. And it happens all the time. And here's how it happens. Your kids do something that aren't right. And you look at them and say, well, you must not be a Christian. And so they began to doubt. Well, maybe I'm not a Christian. Mom and dad said, I, I send, and so I must not be a Christian yet. And so then all of a sudden the child starts to think, well, I got to do better in order that my parents won't say, you must not be a Christian. So that when they look at me and I do a good deed and they say, well, you must be a Christian. I see it in your life. And the child starts to think more about the evidences and the secondary assurances than they do about Christ. And if we're not careful, we begin to program our children that way. I was a youth pastor for eight years, and I had children come into the youth group and say, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. Why aren't you sure? Well, my parents tell me they don't know if I am or not. Well, how about forget your parents for a moment, just for a moment. It's secondary, right? How about you? Do you believe in Christ? Have you confessed him as your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins? Do you doubt that he died for you? Let's start there first. And sure, if the parents have concern, we need to work through that. I'm not saying ignore that. I'm just saying that's secondary assurance. I had kids coming in our youth group, not sure of their salvation, and they left youth group five, six, seven years later, still not sure of their salvation. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that a good thing? Is it God's design that Christians would struggle with their salvation for years? Is that God's design? And I'm suggesting to you it is not, which is why we need to change the way I think that we address assurance of salvation. And here's the way I think we should address it. It's a sin not to have assurance. Now, I'm making a broad statement, you know, to get you thinking, all right? In some ways, sure, there's a time to struggle and a time to think. But really, honestly, are you supposed to struggle and think yes, no, yes, no, yes, no for 10 years? For 10 years, and these high school students and sometimes university students think it's so noble. Somehow like, oh, well, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not. And I'm pontificating about whether or not God chose me or I chose him. And once I figure that out, then I'll, no, 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 forget it. Look, come to Christ. Feast of the bread of life. Believe in him. It's a command to repent and to believe. Those are commands. And so instead of you telling me that you're the authority about your own salvation, just come to Christ in the power of the Spirit and do what he's called you to do. Now, you can't do that unless he enables you. And that's the whole understanding of the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination. He's got to bring you in. He's got to change you. He's got to regenerate you. But your, your, your response to all of that is to believe and to walk in there. And so if you're here this morning and you're struggling with assurance, I'm saying, stop it. It's not noble. It's not a good thing. No one's going to pat you in the back and be like, oh, good for you. You're struggling. Now, at the same time, let's say that is you. And you're like, man, what kind of pastor is that? Then, of course, we're going to hold your hand. And, of course, we're going to lead you to Christ and of course, we're going to sympathize with that can be a real struggle with so many of us for many times. But don't think for a second it's okay. Don't think for a second that somehow it honors Christ to struggle with assurance of your salvation. In fact, listen to this quote about eternal security. As long as the believer is worrying about whether or not they are truly saved, they will never grow up in spiritual maturity. It basically guarantees that a Christian will remain stuck in spiritual infancy. That hits the nail on the head with what I'm talking about. If you're not sure if you're saved, how are you going to be productive for the kingdom of God? If you're not sure you're saved, how are you going to have a passion to evangelize the lost? If you're not sure you're saved, why obey God 100% if you're maybe not even a Christian yet? 
But if God gives you that assurance, which only he can by you looking to Christ and not to your life, it's Romans 8, 16, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we're his. He's got to do it. But your responsibility, if I can say it that way, is just to look to Christ, take him at his word, take some of the emphasis off of you and what you've done and what you believe and what you think and place it on God. Look at Christ and look at what he's done. Look at how he has been your savior all along because all the father has given to the son are saved and he will raise them up on that last day. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. What does it mean when he says, and I will raise them up on that last day. And so I pray that you'll think about some of these things. I know I've stirred up a little bit here this morning. And so if you want to come talk to me after the service or make an appointment this week, I'd be happy to talk with you. I'm not here in some ways to chastise you if you're struggling. I'm just here to call you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and let his life be your life. And you look to him, not at your life as a primary means of salvation. Because why did he send the son into the world? To do the father's will. And the father's will is that he would save all who come to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to dive into John chapter six and to really just have some honest conversation about eternal security and about what it means to have assurance of our salvation. And Lord, if I've, if I've spoken too brash or, or too insensitive to those who struggle, I pray God that we would understand that the, the heart behind what's being said here today is that we would come even so, come, and that we would no longer continue to live a life filled with doubt and of being a double-minded man. But rather today, we come as those who've been saved only by your grace, and we come as those who want to look to your word and take you at your word and believe these glorious truths that all that the Father has given to the Son will be saved, that no one can snatch us out of your hands, that salvation is not about ultimately us examining our own life, but us looking at Christ, seeing his fulfillment of the Father's will, seeing his sacrifice on the cross, knowing that he is our divine attorney. We have an advocate this morning with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so God, work your work through your spirit and through your word in the hearts of your people that we might glory in the salvation extended to our souls. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.